Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet them, greet them, treat them, and street them. Today's date is June 12th, 2022, and I'm your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is Just a Normal Sailing Day in the ICU, the Plus Study. And our guest skeptic is Dr. Aaron Skolnick. He is an assistant professor of emergency medicine at the Mayo Clinic Alex School of Medicine and consultant in the Department of Critical Care Medicine at Mayo Clinic, Arizona. He's board certified in emergency medicine, medical toxicology, addiction medicine, internal medicine, critical care, and neurocritical care. I think next time you're on the show, Aaron, I should have a list of what you're not certified in. It might be a shorter list. You're a full-time multidisciplinary intensivist. You're a medical director of a respiratory care for Mayo Clinic, Arizona, and is most proud of his position as medical student clerkship director for critical care. Welcome back to the SGEM, Aaron. Great. Thanks for having me, Ken. Pleasure to be here. I love having your big brain and your vast sort of multidisciplinary knowledge to be able to apply to these complex cases and situations. I mean, you can come at it from so many different angles. So it's great to have you on the show again. Thanks so much. Well, let's get started with a case. What did you bring today? Well, today, a 62-year-old man is brought in by EMS from home with lethargy and hypotension. His chest x-ray is clear. His labs are remarkable for a leukocytosis of 16,000 with a left shift. His exam is notable for left flank pain and costal vertebral angle tenderness. And a straight cath UA is grossly cloudy and pyuria is present on microscopy. His blood pressure is now 85 over 50. And you wonder which IV fluid should you order? Well, there's been a long-standing debate about which intravenous fluid is best for volume resuscitation in critically ill patients. And we've known for some time that albumin is bad for brain injuries and that hydroxyethyl starch solutions have been associated with kidney injuries and mortality. And since then, broadly, the debate has centered on the choice between what we will refer to as abnormal saline, that's the 0.9% sodium chloride solution we're used to, and balanced crystalloid solutions, meaning those with a chloride composition closer to plasma, such as Ringer's lactate or Plasmalite 148. Right. And we talked about this before, Ken, but there was some early work that suggested harm from 0.9% saline. And the thought was that that might be partly driven by kidney injury, which was associated with the administration of high chloride IV fluids. And in the last few years, that pendulum that swings back and forth in medicine, and you kind of have to be practicing medicine long enough sometimes to actually recognize that the pendulum does swing. There were two large cluster randomized trials, SMART and SALTED, showed a small benefit to the use of balanced crystalloid in preventing a composite outcome of major adverse kidney events within 30 days, otherwise known as MAKE30. Right. And then we talked about the BASICS trial, which is a multi-centered RCT done in 75 Brazilian ICUs. And that came along and compared saline to plasmolite at what the authors deemed to be slow and fast infusion rates. We talked about that last time on SGEM number 347. In that trial, there was no interaction between fluid type or rate of infusion with the primary outcome of 90-day survival. 
among 19, count them, 19 secondary outcomes, which should only be considered hypothesis generating, SOFA scores and neurosofa scores at day seven were worse in the balanced crystalloid group. Well, now we have the PLUS trial from Australia and New Zealand to add to the medical literature on this issue. So Aaron, give us the clinical question. Yeah, the question here is, is the 90-day mortality in critically ill adult patients lower with the use of Plasmalite 148, a balanced crystalloid solution for fluid resuscitation and therapy, than with the use of normal saline? And this is uh, Finfer and colleagues, Balanced Multi-Electrolyte Solution versus Saline in Critically Ill Adults, New England Journal of Medicine, 2022. Let's run through the PCOT. What was the population? The population here was patients 18 years or older, admitted to 53 Australian and New Zealand ICUs over 38 months, whom the treating clinician deemed to need fluid resuscitation and were expected to be in the ICU on three consecutive days. And they excluded patients with specific ICU fluid requirements, those who received disqualifying fluids prior to the enrollment, like more than 500 cc's in the ICU, those at imminent risk of death with a life expectancy less than 90 days, and those with risk for cerebral edema. What was the actual intervention? In the intervention group, Plasmolite 148 was used for all resuscitation episodes, well in the ICU for up to 90 days after the first episode of fluid resuscitation. And what did they compare it to? In the comparison group, uh, 0.9% saline was used for all resuscitation episodes while in the ICU for up to 90 days after that first episode of fluid resuscitation. And let's run through the outcomes. What was their primary outcome? All-cause mortality within 90 days after randomization. I like that kind of primary outcome. First of all, it's all-cause mortality, not disease-specific mortality, and it's not really a composite outcome, and it's got a very, very objective outcome. I mean, you're either alive or dead. How about the secondary outcomes? There were multiple secondary outcomes, and uh, we're going to list those for you in the show notes. All right, and the T of PCOT, what was the trial design? This was a double-blind, parallel group, randomized controlled trial. All right, the author's conclusions were, quote, we found no evidence that the risk of death or acute kidney injury among critically ill adults in the ICU was lower with the use of plasmalite 148 than with saline, end of quote. All right, Aaron, let's go through the quality checklist for randomized clinical trials. The first question, hey, the study population, did it focus on those in the emergency department or at least include those patients? I would say yes. Um, About a third of the patients in each arm were admitted from the emergency department. Roughly a quarter of the patients in each arm were admitted after emergency surgery. We don't know exactly the origin of those patients in detail, but some of those may have come through the emergency department as well. Do you think the patients were adequately randomized? I do. Uh, Patient randomization was done electronically through a secured website. And did they conceal that process of randomization? They sure did, unless somebody was able to hack that website. There's no mention of that in the uh, supplemental. And uh, did they do an intention-to-treat analysis? In other words, did they analyze the groups to which they were initially randomized? Yes, the study was analyzed on intention-to-treat. And the patients, were they recruited consecutively? Yes, the patients were randomized in permuted blocks, so bias should only have been introduced if the assignments became known to the clinicians and investigators. 
And the patients of both groups, were they similar with respect to prognostic factors? They were. And was everybody blinded in this study, the patients, clinicians, and outcome assessors? Yeah, they did a good job with this. The trial fluids were supplied in identical bags, and the patients, representatives, and clinicians were blinded to randomization and group assignments throughout the trial. Do you think they treated everybody equally except for the intervention? No, they didn't. In the study design, all the other treatments were up to the treating clinicians, uh, though over the study period, you'd expect that the treatment variation across both arms would be fairly similar. Was the follow-up complete? Yes, very. The vital status of over 95% of the patients in each group was known at day 90. And do you think all patient-important outcomes were considered in this study? Yeah, you talked already, Ken, about how whether or not the patient is alive or dead is maybe the most patient-important outcome. Um, They also looked at new renal replacement therapy, new vasoactive drugs, your days alive and free of mechanical ventilation and vasoactive drugs, and days alive outside of the ICU and hospital, which all seem like things that you and I would care about. Yeah, and uh, to be clear, you know, alive or dead is very objective. You might make an argument that the quality of life, if you survive, could also be very important. And then the 11th question, the treatment effect. Do you think it was large enough and precise enough to be clinically significant? Yes, this this was a negative study, and I always enjoy getting on your podcast and talking about negative studies because it's a lot easier <laughs> for, for me. But um, though the study was stopped early due to some uncertainties about the COVID pandemic, it had 90% power to detect an absolute difference of almost 4% mortality based on an assumed 23% background ICU mortality, which actually is is kind of right in the ballpark of most ICUs. Yeah, and it's this question number 11 is always a little tricky, especially with studies that are quote negative, because I mean, the data is what it is. So I kind of, you know, characterizing it as positive and negative sometimes can be problematic. I mean, it's a good study. I'm very positive that they published it. So how do you answer yes, no, unsure? But what we got was an answer, right? And the answer we'll get to about the uh, statistical difference and the fact that there wasn't a statistical difference between these two for their primary outcome. So I think they had adequate precision, and I think the um, study was large enough, but there wasn't a large effect size. It was actually neutral. Yes. To clarify, Ken, I only refer to uh, positive studies that that, uh, agree with my anecdotally supported uh, predisposed opinion. Ah, yes. It's such comfort when it agrees with your a priori or your Bayesian analysis going into it uh, confirms your biases. I I understand that feeling. We need to guard against it, but I understand that feeling. All right, the 12th, and and then this one's always a a little tricky too. The 12th question, what about financial conflicts of interest? Did they have financial conflicts of interest in this study? Yeah, they did, although it probably doesn't influence the study outcome. I I think if anything here, the results might even be a little bit more believable, given that we're going to call this, and I'm I'm doing air quotes here, a negative trial. Uh, But Baxter Healthcare and its subsidiary manufacturer, uh, supplied and distributed the concealed trial fluids, and they are the maker of Plasmolite 148. The study was otherwise independently designed and funded mostly by institutional grants, and several of the authors do have some consulting or lecturing relationship with industry, including some with Baxter. Yeah, so when you get this divergent of, you know, yes, they have potential financial conflicts of interest, which does not make the results wrong or their interpretations invalid. It just is another data point, and we have evidence that that could potentially bias the interpretation uh, of the study. 
however, when it comes out as, and I'll use the air quotes now, a negative study, and they do have financial conflicts of interest, I usually go, hmm, I have more confidence now in this result. Right. All right, let's get to those results. Uh, they recruited just over 5,000 patients from those 53 ICUs in Australia and New Zealand. The mean age was 62, 39% were female, and three quarters had invasive mechanical ventilation and a median Apache score of 19. Give us the key result. There was no statistical difference in all-cause mortality within 90 days, Ken. Yeah, so that primary outcome was all-cause mortality within 90 days after randomization. Can you give us the actual number so we know how close these two outcomes were? Yeah, real close. It was 21.8% in the Plasmalite 148 group versus 22% in the saline group. Yeah, so this gave you an absolute difference of 0.15 percentage points. And so that's that's pretty darn close. How about the odds ratio? Yeah, the odds ratio was 0.99 uh, with, uh, of course, a 95% confidence interval that crossed parity. And it crossed it perfectly there, right? With 0.86 to 1.14. So 0.14 on either side of that point estimate for the odds ratio. Exactly. Now, there were a ton of secondary outcomes, which we mentioned earlier. We'll list those in the show notes again, hypothesis generating, but let's get to the talk nerdy points. We actually reached out to the lead author, Dr. Simon Finfer, and he was very kind to respond to our five nerdy questions. And so we'll go through those nerdy questions that we had about the study and, I, and we'll quote him for his responses. So the first question was about recruitment. The trial was originally designed to recruit a sample size of 8,800 patients. And you previously mentioned that due to the COVID-19 global pandemic, the recruitment was stopped at just over 5,000 patients. So our question to Dr. Finfer was, did he think that this influenced the trial results in a meaningful way? And his response was, no. <laughs> and, he, and he said, it's covered in the paper and in the supplemental figure S11. And so I will put that supplemental figure in the show notes for people to see for themselves. Question number two, we said, regarding fluids, more than half of the patients in the balanced crystalloid group received more than 500 mLs of normal saline, mostly because of medications that could not be mixed in a balanced solution. How might this have swayed the trial result? And what did the authors do to account for this? And Dr. Finfer replied, we did several secondary analyses that did not alter the results. They're all in table two. See the attached, which is convincing that going on further to 8,800 or even more would not have produced a different result. And again, we'll reproduce that table in the show notes for you. So the third nerdy question we had for Dr. Finfer was about brain injuries. The author group didn't test balanced crystalloid solutions in traumatic brain injury patients or others thought to be at risk for cerebral edema. So we asked Dr. Finn for what he thought about balanced versus saline in this group. Is this population the clinically stronghold of normal saline? And his response was, quote, the basic study validated our decision not to expose patients with TBI to plasmalite 148, which has a higher tonicity than other balanced fluids, but still lower than normal saline. Patients with traumatic brain injuries should get normal saline end of quote. Yeah, that's an interesting one. I mean, certainly, you know, the basics trial seemed to suggest that uh, in 
in outcomes that were not the primary outcome. You know, I think there's a recent paper published looking at hypertonic saline infusions and severe traumatic brain injury, right, which did not show a difference in patient-centered outcomes. So I think that particular question of what patients with TBI should get should probably be answered by a different trial. But for now, this one says, well, we, we didn't ask. Uh, we thought it might be bad uh, to give them plasmolite, so we didn't do it. Yeah. So, so this study itself, uh, not to put too fine a point on it, is silent on that issue because they excluded those patients from the cohort. So it's really hard to say with the data from this study what to do. Question number four was regarding small effect size, right? So we said, again, here's the air quotes. The trial is a negative one. But as the authors point out in their discussion, their results also allow for up to a 3% increase or decrease in the risk of death or new renal replacement associated with balanced crystalloid administration. Is that an acceptable level of uncertainty about the effect? And how do you apply those confidence intervals to patient care? And uh, Dr. Finfer referred us back to point one and below, which uh, I'll let Ken tell you about. Yeah, so that leads on nicely to the fifth point we have about other evidence. There was this recent systematic review and meta-analysis published in the New England Journal of Medicine Evidence Journal, and it examined 13 RCTs that had over 35,000 patients comparing balanced crystalloid to saline in critically ill adults. That systematic review concluded, quote, the estimate effect of using balanced crystalloid versus saline in critically ill adults ranged from a 9% relative reduction to a 1% relative increase in the risk of death with a high probability that the average effect of using balanced crystalloid is to reduce mortality, end of quote. And so I really wanted to point out, by the way, I was saying that these were relative reductions, not absolute reductions, and that always gets my skeptical radar going. And so we asked Dr. Finn for what he thought of this systematic review, and how does he integrate all of this recent evidence into his clinical practice? And this is where I had egg on my face. So, <laughs> you know, you, you pull up the study and it's got all these multiple authors. Guess what? he was the corresponding author on this paper. So his response was not unexpected. He said, quote, well, as I am the corresponding author on this paper, I think it's quite good. The overall message is that balanced solutions are probably better overall, but the effect is small. For patients with low risk of death, the absolute effect is very small indeed. Patients with traumatic brain injury and possibly other acute brain pathologies should get normal saline or a fluid of equal tonicity. We are conducting a patient-level meta-analysis, which will allow us to look at the subgroup's effect in more detail. I am the senior author of that one as well. We have all the data and hope to publish by the end of this year. End of quote, egg on face. I should have read it in more detail to see that he was one of the authors on that systematic review. That's really well well timed when you put out a, a big RCT and then you also put out the systematic review and meta analysis that addresses the same topic, like within you know a few weeks of one another, right? That's um, that's good. That's good marketing. That's good PR. Uh, spaced repetition, I guess. Maybe I don't know. Yeah. All right. Let's comment on the author's conclusions and compare them to the SGEM's conclusions. Yeah, we generally agree with the author's conclusions on on uh, this trial. All right, Aaron. I'm looking for the SGEM bottom line now. The bottom line here is that plasmolite is not routinely necessary for fluid resuscitation in critically ill adults in the ICU. And can you give us a case resolution? 
Yeah. So you cover the patient with piperacillin tazobactam and you resuscitate him with a total of about two liters of normal saline. He remains hypotensive and a point of care ultrasound reveals a normal ejection fraction and a plump adynamic inferior vena cava. He started on norepinephrine infusion and admitted to the intensive care unit. Urine culture subsequently grows pan-sensitive E. coli, his antibiotics are narrowed, and he's discharged home well on hospital day three to finish his antibiotic course. All right, how are you going to take this new PLUS study and apply it clinically to your practice? I would say that critically ill emergency department patients without significant brain injury can be safely fluid resuscitated with either balanced crystalloids or normal saline without a large difference in patient-centered outcomes. And what are you going to tell the patient at the bedside when you're admitting them to the ICU or managing them? Well, Ken, you know, these days I'm usually on the receiving end of these patients. And and a lot of times they come to me kind of a GCS, a 3T, and we don't get to have this conversation. So what would you tell this fellow in the emergency department? Well, I'd approach this 62-year-old man who EMS brought in with lethargy and hypotension and say, you know, we, we think you have sepsis, which is a severe infection. And we're going to admit you to hospital. We're going to provide you with some IV fluids because your blood pressure is running low. We're going to start you on some broad spectrum antibiotics. And then once those antibiotics are going, we'll get some results back. And depending on what those results are, we can narrow and target that antibiotics and our treatment to help treat you in the best way possible. And we hope you do well. I'm going to pass you on to my colleague. They're working upstairs. They're in the ICU, and they will take good care of you. I'll I'll do my best, Ken. I'll do my best. All right, it's time for the Keener contest. And last week's winner was Dr. James Brady, an emergency department medical director in Arkansas Valley Regional Medical Center. He knew that George Burns was the famous actor who used to say. Good night, Gracie. So what's the question this week, Aaron? Question this week is, what is the name of the physician who is credited with the introduction of the saline solution, aka saline drip methodology into the treatment of patients? Oh, so if you know the name of the physician who is credited with introducing the saline drip, then send an email to the sgem at gmail.com with Keener in the subject line. The first correct answer will receive a cool skeptical prize. Well, again, thanks, Aaron, for coming on and helping bridge us between the ED and the ICU, because we're always talking about, you know, great care takes a great team from the moment people reach out for their emergency care all the way through their pre-hospital care to the emergency department care to their ICU, maybe onto the floor and with their discharge and management as an outpatient. So it's great to have you as that bridge, as that expert between the emergency department and into the ICU. Yeah. Thanks, Ken. And, you know, I, I feel like that division is one that's, that's sort of been artificially created, right? It's like, why, why do we have doctors that only examine your ears, nose and throat, you know, it's, uh, it's not one that was created by the patients. And, and Peter Safford, one of the founders of modern critical care really described critical care as that continuum from the time that you become critically ill, maybe in your house or on the street or out hiking on the mountain, all the way through when you get home and you're rehabilitated. And so uh, the emergency department is a tremendous and, and huge part of that. Uh, and one that I'm very proud to have as part of my background. So thanks again for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. I usually just describe it as, you know what, we're all on the same team and that team is 
team patient. Right. So one last thing to do. Can you give us the SGEM tagline? Yeah, so let's remember, be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on the Skeptic Guide to Emergency Medicine. Talk to everyone next time. Who am I kidding? Yeah.